Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors. And I'm pleased as always to welcome you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. Now, today is a very special day. Um, I actually have somebody who uh, I'm really excited to talk to, and uh, his name is Peter Zaccanino. Now, Peter, he, uh, he came to me, um, and I'm very honored for this, uh, because he has a passion for flight instruction and uh, aviation safety. And uh, I, I think you're really going to enjoy the stories that he has to tell. Now, a little bit about Peter, and I'll welcome him in just a moment. Um, he has over 23,000 hours in over 270 aircraft. He is a test pilot. He's tested over 685 airplanes. And uh, I know he's got some good stories about uh, how some of them might not have even made it into production. Um, he's done 17 years of uh, aviation racing, and he's a four-time champ. Uh, he owns PC Aviators. He was inducted into the New Jersey Aviation Hall of Fame. He's also uh, author and a aviation filmmaker. He's got two books. The newest one, New Cold War, is an award-winning book. And uh, he was also the lead character on Discovery Channel's Dangerous Flights. Peter, thank you so much for carving out the time and your, uh, your busy schedule for us. Oh, my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our chat. So that's a, it's a long list of some really cool things to talk about. And, uh, you know, I think where I want to start is talk to me about your instructional experience. What, uh, I, obviously you're a flight instructor and, you know, how did, uh, how did you get into that? Yeah, I mean, I'm still an active flight instructor, not just carrying the card in my wallet. But um, so uh, way back when in my undergrad, um, I, my undergrad was in aeronautical engineering. And instead of flipping burgers, I figured out if I hurried up and got some ratings, I would be able to start making some money and get some hours while I was doing my engineering degree. And um, so I got my commercial first without my instrument privileges. And that allowed me to start throwing people out of airplanes with a parachute on. And, nice. um, <laughs> yeah. and I did that for quite a while. And that was a, a good door opener. Um, and then when monies came in and I, it, it allowed me to, I got my CFI done, my first CFI. And that was a hell of a check ride. I got to tell you that. But my, <laughs> my very first one, it was, it was when the FAA took away the examining authority from all the, uh, pilot examiners and only FAA inspectors could do it. And then they said, that's not working. And they allowed like a handful of people to do it. And it, it was an eight and a half hour day of just CFI fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was mine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just brutal, but, um, but good. It was fine. You know? Um, so then that led to, um, starting to teach people private pilots while I was in my undergrad. And what ultimately really played out for me, I was given tailwheel checkouts in a champ and it literally paid for all, but um, well, let's just say 80% of my college was paid for through training people in the champ. So I had a real um, love affair with the CFI and the tailwheel community because um, it got me out of school, mostly debt-free. Wow. And that's an achievement for, uh, for aviation. <laughs> You're not kidding. Uh, we all know it's expensive. Um, I've always equated our careers similar to doctors because you go to college, you get degrees, then you kind of do a residency while you build hours. Then 
people torture you in some other, you know, misbegotten airplane, you get more hours in the right time of planes. And then finally you start making a nickel and, you know, it's a, it's a little tough, <laughs> you know, hats off to everybody. But I, I think the best thing about my, me as an instructor early on was um, just learning how people learned. And uh, so I was a bit of a student as well. And when you really focus on transferring knowledge and skill to a person, um, in our example, aviation, you really learn a lot about yourself and, and your craft, as opposed to just, you know, I'm here to build hours. And, and we know that happens and it's unfortunate, but um, if you really pay attention to how to transfer knowledge to a student or an instrument student or multi-engine student, whatever the case may be, I think there's great value for the rest of your career in that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and on top of that, it's, it, I've found that there's an additional sort of intrinsic value in just being able to use those skills in life, you know, being understanding that uh, you can pass on knowledge in a certain way will benefit you in, in business and, and uh, you know, even with family in some cases. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, and I'm still teaching to this day. I mean, obviously I've flown a lot of planes and a lot of different things in aviation, but I, I still, yeah, let's be fair. I'm not doing it, you know, 40 hours a day, eight days a week, 400 days a year. Um, but I'm still actively doing it in, in a bunch of different planes and it's the same principles, you know, it's just the planes are more involved and less forgiving. That's all. Well, and it's, it's refreshing to hear this. And this is one of the really cool things about having you on here is, is so often you hear the the stereotype of people saying, well, you can't make a living in aviation education. You can't make a living as a flight instructor. And, and I think that that scope is, is so um, misguided because it, it opens up the doors to a lot of things. And, and if you have a passion for teaching, it's, it's just about what you do with it. And you can make a really good living and a successful living if you know how to leverage those skills. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, my path has been very circuitous and, just adding to your comment, John, um, which I agree hundred percent with, you know, I get almost annoyed when I hear people say, you know, how you make a, a little money in aviation. You start out with a lot of money, that yeah. whole joke. Yep. And I'm like, yeah, well, if you, if it's that bad, you know, go do something else. I mean, this is one of the best careers and industries in the world. I mean, I've been to every country in the world except for Madagascar and it's completely because of aviation, you know, and, and not just going to these places, but experiencing them and not watching it on the, your favorite news network where they just show a smidgen of what's going on in Ethiopia. You know, you get to see the whole thing mm-hmm. and, and smell it and get dirty about it, you know, and uh, um, it's all because of aviation and, and it's been pretty good to me. You know, I, I couldn't complain at all. So one of the things I'm itching to talk to you about, um, and this is something that uh, that you mentioned when we first met. Uh, and that was that you, obviously you have a lot of time as a test pilot and mm-hmm. you've uh, test flown a lot of airplanes. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that one of the sort of niche instructional areas that you kind of operate in is helping other people become test pilots. How did you get into that? And, and what's that like? Well, you know, uh, my path definitely opened up because uh, of being an aeronautical engineer, uh, and practicing engineer. I mean, it just depends on which year we're talking about how much I did engineering and et cetera, plus flying. Um, but there's, um, 
there's always pilots that have something that you don't have, um, knowledge, skill, whatever. Um, I was brought in on some projects cause I had a lot of HUD experience, you know, heads up display. And, um, those projects went very favorably. And then my role was also to share that knowledge and transfer it to other pilots on what I was looking for with the HUD and not just the test cards we write. Cause we write these half page test cards, right? And we make a deck of them. And then we go out and test the program with those deck of cards and they get turned into a report and uh, gets reviewed at the safety review board and that whole process, right? Um, but, you know, in that role, every single time has been transferring that knowledge um, to other test pilots. Now, in, in some cases, it was just, um, it wasn't other test pilots, it was pilots because we're writing the rules on how this plane should be operated and how the equipment should be operated and et cetera. And that takes a team of people to do. Um, but then there was a cases where we um, were brought in to teach test pilots and that's a different animal, but it's still a CFI, you know? Um, yeah. And, and we're trying to keep them um, on a different perspective because the, the knowledge we're transferring to them is how to mitigate risk. None of us can eliminate risk, but we can mitigate risk. And so we're trying to teach them how to mitigate risk while um, getting the information and the data point they need um, for um, the test at hand, whatever that test may be. It could be a new airplane or different engine or something hanging off the wing, you know, there's a slew of test programs that go on. So we're transferring the knowledge to them that, okay, you got to mitigate risk. Yes. You got to be disciplined in your write-ups and all of that, but you also are there to gather data and transfer that to the company or whatever, the flight test engineers, both all of it, other test pilots. So mistakes are prevented or avoided and um and that's a different process it's a different animal oh i i imagine so for our audience you know when you're talking about mitigating risk are there things that uh your uh standard pilot or standard cfi could take from your techniques in in training test pilots of mitigating risk how does an average pilot use those same skills yeah i mean absolutely um I don't think I I have a takeoff that occurs without briefing myself on that takeoff. Um, I don't jump into any plane, you know, and I still fly a lot of small, simple airplanes and complex single engine planes and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, you know, I still have the time to do that. And um, <clears throat> if I'm in a Cessna 172 and I'm taking off and A, what does it take to uh, turn that plane back around and land. It's kind of a hot topic right now. Mm -hmm. If you don't know it, you shouldn't try it. If you haven't done that with someone that has the skills to prevent a really bad thing from happening, even during practice, you shouldn't do it. And you need to be disciplined about your approach to doing it and how do you get that knowledge. We could do it in an hour. It wouldn't take long. You know, you come out to Park City and uh, start flying a Lear with us, John, and uh, I'll show you how to do all kinds of fun stuff with the various planes. But it's because it's a build-up process. We're not just outgoing and trying it, you know. Mm -hmm. We're doing a build-up process to make it happen. And even in as simple of a plane as a 172. And I, I it, it may only take an hour to do it in a 172 to get that knowledge, as opposed to a single-engine fighter jet that may take 
you know, several flights to figure that answer out. But it's still the same process. It just happens faster. So as a result, on my takeoff roll on them, pre-takeoff checks in the 172, great. We do the checklist and, and they're good to do. Um, but then I'm also going, okay, if the engine uh, pops at 300 feet, I'm landing straight ahead with whatever it is, period. You know, if it pops at X feet, I'm making the turnaround maneuver and landing on the taxiway, which is actually closer to me than, than the runway, um, the opposite runway because of the turnaround procedure. It's not just a 180, right? Um, and if it happens in a thousand feet, et cetera. And I just go through that whole thing until I feel I'm at a minimum safe altitude, whatever that is for that plane on that day. Mm -hmm. You know, some planes, it could just be your ejection altitude. So you're, you know, you got that moment where you're from 300 feet to say 1800 feet because you can't eject from there and you just hope something bad doesn't happen and hope's a really bad strategy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you still have a plan, you know, if it pops at low altitude, keep the gear up, put it on uh, some soft surface and fly it through the, the post crash and um, keep flying it until you're out of that plane. Um, but the other thing is how we teach engine failures. I'm a big fan of ABC mm -hmm. airspeed and trim for it. You know, how many, if you're at cruise speed in a Cessna 172 and uh, you, the engine quits, how many turns of that trim wheel from top to bottom does it take to get you close to your 60 or 65 knot, depending on the model, best glide speed, right? And that's something that should be ingrained in everyone. It's not going to be a perfect trim, but it's going to get you close. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be a big uh, determining factor because now you're involved with the event as opposed to an observer of the event. And so it's not just airspeed best glide, it's trimming it to maintain close to best glide. You don't want to focus on it, but you want to get there and be close to it. And then B in the ABC is best suitable landing site and a plan for getting there. Not, you know, the classic, there's the field I'm landing there. Okay, good job, Johnny. Let's keep going. You know, woohoo, that was awesome. No, nah, that doesn't really cut it. You know, it's what's my plan? Well, if I'm at a thousand feet, I can make a 360 degree turn, um, basically a modified pat pattern to land there in this particular plane. If I'm at 500 feet, I can only make, you know, the, a 90 degree turn. That's it. And if you're at, you know, 750 feet, I can make a 180, right? And um, you should know those numbers for the plane. So I think those are very important numbers to glean on any plane you fly. Piper Cub, MiG-17, it doesn't matter what it is. You should know that. MiG-21 is 23,000 feet. Good luck, you know. Yeah, that's how, that's roughly the altitude you need to make a 180. But, um, you know, you should know that for any plane you're in. And then C is the checklist, right? A checklist, perform it from memory, your immediate action items, you know, small plane world, carb heat on, if it's appropriate, of course, uh, mixture, change the mixture, either lean it or enriching it, depending on your situation, um, et cetera, and run through those memory item checklists. Um, and that's the stuff we do on a, sometimes a more involved level, but it's still the basic stuff. Again, if it's a cool pointy airplane or a Piper Cub, doesn't matter. It's interesting. You said a couple of things that, that really hit home with me. Um, you know, the first was basically vigilance, right? Cause I think a good instructor always briefs the, uh, how to do a, a takeoff brief and, and includes all of the important items of what do you do and stuff like that. But to your point, 
so often it's going through the motions. You do it a couple times yeah. and then at the you know fourth flight of the day, and maybe the student is is also on their second flight of the day and you're you're talking about things and you say, okay, this is what I'm gonna do, blah, 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 blah. But you can tell that they're saying the words, but they're not visualizing the words. They're not actually right. paying attention to the words that they're saying. So to your point, the the vigilance of making sure that you're going through these steps in an active way to to understand what's going to happen if you actually have to do those things. Um, so I, I yeah, think I mean, I, I think you're speaking to a, a super important point because that that 32.65 hour student pilot, he's just doing our first level of learning, which is rote, right? Mm -hmm. And our job is to get them to the next level understanding and the next level application and the next level correlation. And when he gets to that final level, um, smart people wrote those things a long time ago before the world got really dumb. And, uh, um, you know, for good reasons. And our job is to get them through those four steps. Cause right now, like you just said, yeah, he's just going through the takeoff briefing because he knows he's supposed to, and that's his rote. And we've all been guilty of it. None of us are perfect pilots. You know, we're all causing trouble all the time, but, uh, <laughs> you know. and, and you've got both sides of it. You've got the, the side where you they're doing it because they know they're supposed to. And then you've got the other side that has done it a million times and nothing bad's ever happened. And so they're just saying it and going, eh, it's fine. It'll be fine. And then yeah. all of a sudden something happens and they go, well, I briefed it, but I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, the truth is engine failures don't, don't happen that often, but um, contaminated fuel does. Uh, bird strikes for jets do happen. Yep. Um, fuel lines coming off and causing a partial engine failure, something that's not taught a lot. Swallow a valve on cylinder number three, you know, and you, you now have three cylinders working like they should, but the plane's still making some power. That's a whole different scenario. Um, a lot of that type of stuff, you know, it's not like the private pilot should be 850 hours of flight training, but there's things to glean from other experience that can be transferred to that student. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I really liked that you said was um, the idea of being an active participant, not an observer, essentially, you know, fly the airplane, right? Um, yep. When we are going for type ratings and things like that, I, I am typed on, on the Lear and they always tell you fly it all the way to the scene of the incident. And, and I believe you said that as well. Um, yep. But it's, it's something that, um, you know, is, is good to say, but it's hard to practice sometimes, you know, people, people get resignation um, or they just, forget what they're doing because they're stressed out about what's happening. Um, sure. And so I can't... really like that point. Yeah. And the other thing is we can't practice crashing. <laughs> Except in the sim. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You know, but, uh, but even then, even in the sims, you know, you can't, you kind of can simulate a belly landing, but it's not the same, like intentionally belly landing a, a jet. That's yeah. for sure. You know, yeah. I mean, the Sims are awesome. I'm very pro training and pro Sim, but um, they still, you know, unfortunately we got to rely on ourselves at those critical moments and, you know, come back to those fundamentals that have been ingrained in us. So as a test pilot, I mean, that's got to be pretty stressful. I mean, how do you, how do you train out the fear in, in an airplane you've never flown before and, and doesn't even have the, the, airworthiness certificate to, to go into production? Like, how do you, sure. how do you get over that, that stress level? Well, um, it's, 
it's definitely not for everybody, but I think when I think about the people that I've learned a lot from, um, very esteemed test pilots, um, none of them are thrill seekers. None of them are the excited type. Um, it's, it's just about, we're doing a job and our job is cool. And, um, I think at least for me, when we're building up to the first flight on an airplane, whether it's a experimental amateur built experimental Lance air, for example, um, or it's a X plane being built for some group or agency. Um, the, there's a buildup to it. Um, an inspection process, safety review boards, um, weather, time of day, so many, so many variables. And the professional is, is involved in that buildup because they're gaining confidence in the equipment. You know, these, these planes aren't romantic. You know, we romance aviation, but the planes aren't romantic. Mm. You know, you're not taking them to dinner in a movie, right? Right. And uh, nothing wrong with romancing our career, but the planes aren't romantic. They're not romantic entities. And um, it has to prove to me that it's not trying to kill me. And that's the buildup. And that means engine testing, taxi testing, high-speed testing, liftoff testing, rotational tests. Um, some of those are pretty sketchy. And the plane hasn't technically flown. Well, it depends who you ask. Some people feel rotational tests are... It, it's flown because it supports itself in the air, even if it's three feet off the ground. But, um, and that's fine. I, I get why it's a hazardous test. But um, so those, those uh, build up, uh, that build up method and that procedure gives you confidence in the machine. And then finally, you commit to the flight. Um, and hopefully, you have a good team supporting that decision, both on maintenance as well as decision making. You know, the more complicated test programs have a massive team. But when you're dealing with a amateur built Lance Air, that um, there's still a team involved. And then the process is still the same. It's just, it's been simplified because of cost reasons, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's still the same thing. And so your confidence that I guess replaces the stress or the fear is in that build up process to answer your question. Sure. So what happens? Um, as a test pilot, what kinds of things happen that make you go, this one's not going to pass. We're not, we're not putting this one into certification. Well, even if it's not for certification, you know, cause that doesn't really happen anymore. in um, in general, if a manufacturer is coming up with a plane to, um, go to certification or for the military, chances are that's happening. I mean, really good chances. The ones that are less or have a more difficult time are the prototypes and they're not a modification. They're a prototype. And there's been not recently, but over the years has been a lot of startup companies with a new plane. I mean, kind of right now with the electrical, with the electric planes, there's a lot of electric planes popping up that have been designed on a computer and, you know, haven't been flown and we get these phone calls and they're quite fun to chat with. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, we, we just spoke to someone couple months ago back in the summer and they said uh plane's been fully designed a computer you're gonna have it flying in september and i was like "Ooh, <laughs> that's that's ambitious um but because of the build-up process build-up process can take months um 
But so there have been prototypes we've walked away from and they were hard, only twice for me. The planes never flew. They never flew when I um, walked away from them. You know, we wrote up their deficiencies. One was so deficient that um, I didn't think it would ever be correctable. Not even with an infinite budget, you'd have to change so many things. There was a third plane actually, and it recently flew, not, not by us, uh, flew by someone else. And we wrote up about, I did a, an inspection on that one. And I wrote up about 85 deficiencies. Oh my gosh. And I handed them the report and, um, you know, I was the bad guy because I wrote up all these deficiencies and I was like, hey, some of these, oh, that's right, all 85, you have to fix or someone's going to have a really bad day. And they actually flew it and, and, and everything was safe and sound. And I think they did a lot of those fixes, but, you know, you feel like the bad guy because of how they, they didn't want to hear me tell them that their pride and joy with millions of dollars into it isn't going to fly under its current condition. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, I mean, if you don't tell them, I'm sure the FAA probably would at some point. When Well, you know, the, F, the FAA has a different role and this plane is a prototype. The most recent one I'm speaking about, um, it was a prototype and getting an airworthiness just so we can go fly around the pattern as an experimental. Oh. It's not that hard. Um, it's hard in the sense of it takes a lot of time and energy, but it's not that hard from the paperwork side. And, um, you know, and only one person could be in the plane unless it was a two person aircraft. In this case, it wasn't, but, um, but they did get it in the air and it was safely back in the ground. It's done subsequent flights. I don't think it's done much more than that, but hmm. you know, so um, to shift gears, I know yeah. one of your sort of passions is aviation safety. Um, and, and I know that you do a lot of speaking on aviation safety. What, uh, what kind of topics do you like to talk about? And, and uh, especially if it's related to aviation training? Um, you know, that's a part of it. I, I think I have a, a little bit of a different approach to it than maybe some of the industry. Mm-hmm. Definitely have overlap, right? Um, with the industry, but I'm big on training. Um, you know, if you go to school for Lear 45 in Atlanta or Tucson, you get your type rating, you're legal to go show up and fly that plane. Is that a good idea? Hmm. Maybe. I mean, it depends on the person, right? And their experience. And uh, yeah, they've flown a lot of Bombardier products and they know their language, so to speak, of that manufacturer. And, you know, maybe it is a good idea. Um, but that's, that's an honesty thing. And I got a lot of type ratings and flown a lot of different jets. And I would still rather fly with someone that's flown that jet before me going out and doing it alone. Mm-hmm. It's just smart. Right. And so I, I kind of use that example to answer your question because um, a friend of mine, Mike, he, he was helping me get this vampire ready for racing. And it was the same thing. I was like, if he has done it before me and I can get some good information from him and not the bad information I was receiving prior to him, why wouldn't I, you know, and uh, it's just a smart thing to do. And sure. There's planes that are super easy to fly. And you could just jump in and go. And I get that. Uh, but anytime you can get 10 minutes in that plane with someone else, I think it just immediately reduces the risk level, mm-hmm. even if it's a very simple airplane. And, um, the nuances of that simplicity. And, and so that's kind of one of my tenets is to just suggest people get the training, whether it's again, 10 minutes or 10 hours or whatever, it makes sense for that equipment type. Um, and you know yourself, 
it's a bad feeling when you're up there wondering, did I switch the right fuel tank correctly? Did I do that? Right. And you're like, I really don't know. You know, oh, well, the manual and the checklist says so, but is that really understanding? Which level of learning is that, right? Um, that's called the scared panic learning. <laughs> Let's wait five minutes and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but then it's all, in my opinion, it's really knowing your machine um, and not just doing paperwork to know your machine. There's a place for paperwork, of course, but uh, safety isn't through paperwork. Mm -hmm. Safety is through knowing the equipment, knowing yourself, knowing the conditions. Um, one of one of our pilots and myself the other day were just spending probably too much time figuring out um, the conditions on our runway because it was a lot of snow and they plowed it and you know et cetera et cetera and we we just evaluated it extensively and he's a very experienced jet guy and we came up with a decision and this is the decision worked but it was the same thing it was i don't care how much i've done how many times i've landed in arctic conditions and greenland and here and there and blah 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 it was still just let's evaluate this time because it this time is different from every other time and uh, we just took the time to do it and we're not afraid to tell our customers no you know we're not doing that and one of the best lines I ever had flying a Gulfstream I had this great customer. He said, uh, weather was bad. Gulfstream super capable plane. He goes, you know, Pete, we're not doing brain surgery. I don't need to, uh, I don't need to go. And I said, I said to him, I said, Dominic, even if you were a brain surgeon, if we just got there dead, what good of it would it be to go? Right. right. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It, it doesn't help anything if uh, the flight has a, a, a negative outcome. Right. And, uh, so we're, uh, we have great customers that respect our decision-making, you know, and, uh, the, the fallacy of, well, it worked that time. Now we can do it this time, you know? Yeah. That's a dangerous path to be on. So yeah, that's one of the other points I like to share with people. Even if you're, even if you're number two and it worked for the guy right in front of you, doesn't mean it's going to yeah. work for you. You have no exactly. idea what their capabilities or their airplanes going to do. I had a similar situation last week, actually. Uh, we had uh, launched for uh, Indianapolis Executive Airport. It's a 5,500 foot strip um, just yeah. outside of Indy. And the weather wasn't good, but it was legal for us to go and it was down to minimums. Um, and uh, it was supposed to rain, but it wasn't supposed to rain until several hours after we were going to get there. And we we're launching from Florida. And uh, so we get up to uh, the Indianapolis area and all of a sudden we realize it, the rain came early. And so of course I'm running numbers to find out because I know I have to have any ice on because it's cold up here. Can wet numbers work? And uh, they don't. <laughs> and I'm trying to run a bunch of different scenarios in the course of just a few minutes because we're nearly on top of the airport now. Can I make this work? And finally, you know, to your point, I had to stop and look at my first officer and I said, you know what, this is stupid. And he looks at me and he's like, why? And he said, we are nearly at the end of our duty day. It's at night. It's cold. It's rainy. It's, you know, all of these things. And you and I are here debating whether we think that the pavement's going to be wet when we get there. It's right. raining. It's yeah. wet. The numbers say, no, forget it. We're not doing this. Right. You know, and, and the hardest part sometimes is just convincing your own brain to go 
why am I even debating about this? It's, it's not worth it. Like you said, if we, if I get the passenger where we want to go, but we, you know, kill ourselves in the process, they're not going to be happy assuming they even survive. Um, And of course, you know, it's, it's never easy to tell the passengers that, uh, that there's a change of plans, but uh, they get over it and they live to, to tell another day. Um, But the peer pressure is real. Yeah. And you know, the duty day is there for good reasons, but there's things like you just mentioned that affect that. And then, but I think the biggest takeaway from your story is that you just transferred an experience to your co-pilot that he can pull out of his tool bag sometime down the road. And, you know, the runway is 5,500 feet and, and the charts say you can land in 5,450. And some people say, well, a professional pilot's going to make that work out, et cetera. I'm like, okay, but there's variables that affect that. And do you want to be that close on your margins? Sometimes, yes. I mean, sometimes the answer is yes. And that is the difference with a professional. And you answer that question. But then there's times because it's late in the day or it's, you know, things that are adding up and stacking up. Um, Even though it's all legal, it still might be the better answer to go land at Indy International and skip Mm -hmm. executive and, you know, have a simpler day of it because of the decision-making process. Well, and, and uh, unlike you, I'm not a test pilot. <laughs> and so, you know, certain numbers are performed to the, the test pilot capabilities. And, uh, you know, us regular guys need to remember that, uh, that am I going to hit those numbers perfectly? Maybe once out of every few, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to hit exactly what, uh, what you guys might have on, on perfect conditions. Um, yeah, you know, no, it, yeah. Even when we were using the average pilot technique, which is part of criterion for certification, you know, you have to delay your response time. It doesn't matter. It, it's still, we're ready for the task as opposed to it just gets thrown into your lap. I get it. You know, I get it. It's not about being Superman anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's, you know, obviously this is jet talk, but you could to relate this back to sort of the, the piston aircraft. I mean, the, the, the same thing goes if, if you're getting breaking action reports and you're not comfortable with that, if you are, um, you know, going into a grass, a short grass strip and, and you're not sure about performance numbers and things like that. I mean, all of this stuff does translate regardless of what size, Absolutely. Yep. not only do you have to know the airplane's capabilities, but you got to be honest with your own, the airplane yep. can do it. Can you? Yep, exactly. So it's, uh, it's one of my more passionate uh, topics because uh, I, I just feel like, like you said, people feel like they need to be Superman. They, they need to be, um, you know, uh, Tom Cruise and Top Gun or, or Han Solo and, you know, whatever. Sure. Um, so it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's interesting to get people to recognize what they're capable of doing. And, and to be honest, when they're in over their heads. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. So racing, how did, uh, how did you get into racing? Well, a um, long time ago, Galaxy Far Away, um, I was called and asked if I would fly the pace plane in the sport class at the air races in Reno. And I was like, sure, haven't done that before. Let's go. And um, and I was using a Lance Air and I showed up and I'm getting all this briefing and really great guys. Um great friends to this day, Rick and Jeff and others. And, um, we run around doing the pace plane, uh, under their tutelage 
And I was like, oh yeah, I'm coming back next year. I'm racing, you know? And so talked to another friend of mine, Bob, and um, we came up with this plan on resurrecting this Lance Air 4. And um, we did. And uh, I showed up the next year to start racing with that in the sport class. And uh, I was like, I was hooked, you know? <laughs> and it, great guys, again, back to training. These guys are great instructors because um, there's a whole process to being able to race. And, uh, and then that was what, 2005, I think. And then fast forward several race planes later, getting into the jet class. Um, initially with an L39, I was flying and using for flight test support, actually. And uh, said, well, we got this L39. I might as well go to the jet class because that, that looks really fun. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so 2007, I took my first championship in the um, first gold championship in the sport class with the Lance Air. And that was your first year, wasn't it? No, I, in my first year, you may have seen on the internet stuff. Sometimes it gets um, confused. The first race I ever raced in, I won a heat race, but that was oh, just okay. a heat race. And it was cool. I have to say that the first race ever, you know, I did win in that heat race, but that wasn't a championship. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, so 2007 was my first championship and that was in the Lance Air. And then, um, 13 with a highly modified L29 with a big engine shoved in it. Wow. And then um, 2015 with the Vampire Jet. And then 2019 with the L29 again, after that got allowed to race again through the um, approval process. And uh, yeah, here we are. So you, I'm not familiar. What is a Vampire Jet? So the Vampire is a really cool airplane. Um, you know, we speak about generation aircraft, generational aircraft, generation one, two, three, four, five. I call it a um, generation 0.5. Oh, uh, gosh. It was, so most people think it was a, um, a the, the original engine in the Vampire. They often incorrectly say it's a Rolls-Royce engine. It's not. It's actually a whittled de Havilland engine made by de Havilland, ultimately became a Rolls-Royce engine, the Neen, uh, through iterations, but it was actually a de Havilland-made engine. And, I mean, this thing, you could throw walnut shells in and it would operate it, you know, um, pretty simple, but the wing was awesome. Um, really fast wing. Um, it was a simple plane, but it had some complexities. <laughs> it had some really unique stuff. I mean, there was no percent of power. It was... Um, it was RPMs of the engine, you know, literally 10,000 RPMs or whatever the number was. And uh, very different. It was pretty cool to fly a jet of that vintage. And it was, it was the first aircraft to go to a carrier, in fact. Really? Um, yeah, later in its career. It was the first jet fighter to cross the Atlantic. Um, yeah, it's a pretty unique plane. They built a lot of them, too. And uh, sold them to, you know, Australia, Switzerland, and all the typical and common places that buy from the manufacturers, but, um, you know, it's got twin boom tail, single engine. Um, this particular one had two seats, two side-by-side -side seats and, um, uh, something's dinging. Sorry about that. And, um, uh, but it was a, it was a neat plane to fly. Um, it had its things that were challenging because <laughs> a lot of the people that knew how to keep it flying, they're gone. Yeah. You know, it's that old. 
So a lot of things we reinvented the wheel and there's just not that many of them, but it's a cool airplane. So like I said, it's technically a generation one fighter. I call it the 0.5 generation 0.5. (laughs) (laughs) So you said a couple, you had a couple of good mentors for, uh, for getting in, but, uh, you know, how does, how does somebody make that leap? How do you, how do you learn to be an air racer? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, it's a, it's a couple things, you know, you have to go through, <coughs> I'll start that over for editing. <laughs> Sorry. A little bit dry here. Um, I, you have to pass what we call pylon racing school and, uh, nickname is rookie school and that's in June right around father's day. And I kind of have always said, it's more like pylon racing testing. And what I mean by that is when you show up, you're expected to have good skills about several areas. One of them is fundamental, um, you know, upsets and basic aerobatics, you know, um, as it relates to racing, you're, expected to be very strong in formation and your formation skills. Um, and then your aircraft, there's people that have showed up that didn't know their airplanes and they have not passed. Um, and they were very experienced pilots. Uh, one particular, I think of it was a F 16 pilot, good guy, good pilot, but he didn't know the plane and, and you're not going to pass that course without knowing the plane. Um, he came back and he did fine. Uh, but the, the training component is about the racing, getting on the track, how we do our procedures, the race start, the race exit, the recovery. Those, those areas you are taught and it's quite involved. Um, there's a massive, what we call the mass in brief. Then you have the class briefings, you have briefings before each flight. And then you have a ramp briefing before you actually get in the plane and you debrief that and talk about issues. And then you then you pre-brief uh, other things. I wish I would stop doing that. Um, and so the briefing process is pretty involved because of good reasons. The race course is from 50 feet roughly to 250 feet off the ground. And it has a corridor that you're in. You can't go inside the pylons and you can't go outside the limits of the race course. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty narrow environment. And you're doing this at high speed with eight airplanes. So the training requirements are pretty, I think, extensive and the demands are pretty high and as they should. And we've had, you know, guys with, and gals with less experience pass because they just worked really hard at it and um, they've done a great job. And then there's, again, there's been very experienced guys from the military who haven't passed um, and every combination of course, in between. And, and it's back to training. The, the, I'm an instructor there and a Czech airman and I've learned from the guys before me and um, that are still doing it and some have retired, but um, how to transfer the knowledge to a racer who's in most occasions already a pretty high experience and high pedigree pilot, but now we got to transfer the knowledge to them. So again, it's another CFI issue, so to speak, and um, learning what's going to get the information into their head so that they're a safe racer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, with all of this stuff, have you ever done or thought of doing like the, the Red Bull stuff or? Yeah. Um, a friend of mine that used to do it, he, he passed away, unfortunately. Um, he was announcing for Red Bull. He was also flying in Red Bull 
And um, the first time they stopped Red Bull, I was pursuing it. And and uh, I don't know if I would have gotten in or been invited or not. You know, there's variables. Uh, but I was pursuing it, and then they stopped. And he frankly said to me, it's cool, but boy, is it consuming of your time. And it's not this big payout, okay? And we all have to make a living. Um, then uh, I just kind of backed away from it. You can't do everything you're in your career. I've tried. I mean, yeah, I, it sure I, looks like you've tried. <laughs> but I did. I backed away from it. And then they stopped it again, of course, as we all know. Um, I don't know if I was asked right now today if I would do it or not. I'm not sure. Yeah. It's always different when you're actually asked versus thinking about it um, figuratively. So, but it looks like fun. <laughs> it sure does. It sure yeah. does. So with all these things that you've done, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure you have more stories than we have time for, but uh, do you have any cool stories, especially from an instructional side that you'd, uh, you'd like to share? From the instructional side, boy, I have a lot of stories, but I, I want to try and think from, from the perspective of instruction. Well, there was one that was very interesting. This was early on in my career. Well, there was two that happened early on. I was checking a guy out in a tailwheel airplane, pretty high performance tailwheel airplane. And he was doing great. And he is great. And he's a great pilot. Um, but things always happen. It's funny how things happen. And um, we're touched down on this really nice grass field. It's now paved since then. But um, And our touchdown speed in that plane is about 80. So it's kind of, kind of quick, quick enough. All of a sudden, I'm in the I'm in the um, the uh, instructor seat, you know, tandem aircraft. All of a sudden, I'm looking at the grass, and he had pushed way too much nose forward, um, and I I felt responsible in the sense that, you know, I was a little lax because he was doing so well, and it was a great lesson, and nothing happened, and that's why it was a great lesson. You know, if something happened, it's never a good lesson, but. Mm -hmm. You know, all of a sudden I'm looking at the grass because he pushed forward too much on the wheel landing and I grabbed the stick and copped the power and off we went. Nothing bad happened. And I was like, dude, what happened? And he's like, I just pushed forward too much. I'm like, no, that was what caused it. But what led up to that? And it was a great discussion. Um, it was just his own awareness of where he was at with the flight controls. But again, nothing happened. Um, the other one that was interesting, I took... <coughs> The other one that was interesting is I took a, a friend's sibling up for a flight and um, she was taking lessons and he was in aviation and um, it was a flight, you know, the classic case of she wasn't sure about her instructor and if he was good or not good and that whole story. And you never know the, which side of it is, right? So we went up and I was like, well, let's do some basic maneuvers, some of this, some of that. And I said, you know, we'll do a stall and uh, let's do a benign stall. So power off, clean wing. All right. Time to recover. And she stiff armed the yoke. So her both arms were locked Ooh. with the nose facing the ground <laughs> and she was frozen. She was absolutely frozen. And um, I yanked the power out of course to, mitigate the scene and then um was like okay um you need to stop doing this and uh um etc and next thing i know i was 
literally pushing down on her elbow at the joint so her arm would relax. And then she like came out of this whole moment and I was like, you okay over there? Cause we were aiming at the, you know, trees and water. She's like, I don't know why I did that. So classic case she had up until that point only seen demonstrations of stalls. And it was another classic example of, of the stall word making her think it was death and mayhem, you know? And, um, but yeah, so those are the first two that come to mind. <laughs> There's been others. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So as we, uh, as we start to wind down here, obviously we, we've got to mention the book. Um, first you. and foremost, uh, New Cold War, what, what's it about and, and where would I find it? So the New Cold War, that's the second book in the series. We call it the Relevant Series. And um, it's, um, it's definitely a military spy thriller. Uh, it's not an aviation book. And the first book is called Relevant, and it's about a CIA-developed asset that leads a team that's chasing bad guys. It was um, that book. The first book was more kinetic. The second book is more um, um, more about the espionage side, still with some kinetic operations. And then I use a lot of the narrative in the book between the characters to. Um, to basically, uh, how would you put it? Bring out some historic facts, some metaphysics. You know, asking the question and why, 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 why do you do this? Why do you think this? Why do you feel this way? Um, you know, about hot international topics, and with the hope that, you know, through a good story, maybe people think a little bit about it, other than just what's on the news, mm-hmm. and um, question things a little bit. Um, nothing crazy. Still a fun book to read. That's the point of it. Um, and the easiest way to find it is on Amazon. Um, it's, it's, they've done such a good job on how they do it. It's definitely the easiest way to get the book. Cool. And congratulations on the award. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate that, John. So, um, I mean, any other projects or anything else you want to, you want to plug or talk about? No, I mean, um, you know, we're always doing good, cool adventure chasing stuff. Uh, uh, the third book's halfway done. Oh wow! To, to speak to that, and then I'm trying to get the flying book, which is not a part of the series, of course. Um, just my flying adventures. Um, anybody got any good ideas for the title? Let me know. But um, it's a lot about the places I've been, the people, and the food, and all those things that add up to positive experience. But I'm also putting in the bad experiences too. <laughs> I one of the one of my favorite things about my job is the food. We, oh, yeah. uh, I, I joke that, uh, that I've traveled the country for no other reason than to eat dinner. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, if I, if I actually took the time to write down all the places that are my favorite places across the country, I feel like I could sell it to food network or something because you're absolutely right. Oh my gosh, the food. All right. So you see these notebooks right here. Yeah. You get to see them. I have like 40, I don't know, four of them. And, um, I didn't start it right at the beginning, but in these notebooks, it has the flying basics for logging purposes and approaches and all that. But then what it also has is where I ate for a restaurant, where I stayed comments on both. And, you know, if I met someone interesting or conversations and it just whatever I want, you know, it's kind of my notes. And so there were, I'm going through those, um, to get, uh, the stories that I want to highlight in the, in the flying book. Yeah. 
No, that sounds awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, pilot's guide to eating America is what I've been thinking about, you know? So, well, there was the pilot's guide to hamburgers, right? <laughs> yeah. But the scope is too limited. I know I get it. <laughs> so, well, Peter, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know scheduling has been a little bit tough. Um, but, uh, your, your stories are amazing and, uh, what you, uh, have done for for just representing flight training and and how it can be unique and special and uh, how people like we said before can make a living doing something that they love um, it, it's a it's a, a amazing thing and I think it's a, a role model for all of us flight instructors well I hope so I um you know we, we all have to give back at various chapters in our life and etc so um, anything I can share, just holler. If I can help you anyway, John, just let me know. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, no problem. So there you have it, folks, Peter Zaganino, and, uh, make sure you look up his book. Uh, first one being relevant. The second one is new cold war. There should be more books coming out shortly. Um, you can even find, uh, the former show he worked on dangerous flights from discovery channel. And, uh, I'm sure there's, uh, going to be plenty more in the future. So thank you so much again. You bet, Jeff. We'll see you soon.